Welcome to Better Brace podcast, where we start a conversation with the community about aspects of sexual harassment in the workplace, ranging from how to define workplace harassment to legal actions and power dynamics. We are a group of international students from Minerva schools at KGI. Through this podcast, we want to raise awareness about workplace harassment, empower individuals with the resources to recover from workplace harassment, and provide a space for people to seek help from one another. We are so glad you're part of this journey with us. We know this is a tough topic, but it's important to start this conversation. And remember, no one should be alone in this. Just a heads up, due to coronavirus, we have to record some of our episodes virtually, so our audio quality may not always be ideal. Thanks for hanging tight with us and stay safe. This podcast contains sensitive information about workplace harassment. Please take care while you're listening. Take a break and reach out for support if you need to. Welcome back to Better Braves Community Podcast. My name is Swang and I'm one of your co-hosts for today. Hi, I'm Alia. I'm also one of your co-hosts. And today we will talk about how can we build healthier workspaces and encourage bystanders to be allies in this cause with Jamie. Welcome, Jamie. Can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself? Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm the founder and executive director of Empower Work. Empower Work is a national nonprofit that actually partners with Better Brave, and we provide essentially a crisis text line for workplace situations. And that means that anyone who's experiencing stress or strain or concern about a particular work interaction or situation that's happening can connect in with one of our trained peer counselors. It's confidential, it's immediate, it's free, and it's all done at the tip of your fingers. You can do it over SMS or web chat. Thank you. And can you please tell us what was your journey starting the organization? Sure. So I certainly did not set out to start an organization. I was Mm -hmm. supporting people sort of whisper network style a few years ago. And I should should back up and say that throughout my career, I've been a longtime manager and part of a lot of internal structures to help create healthy workplaces in the organizations where I've worked. Through that work, sort of got a reputation for being someone to go to with challenging work situations. And a couple of years ago, particularly when Susan Fowler's Uber memo came out where she disclosed what she was experiencing at Uber and there were more and more Me Too headlines. I was increasingly getting conversations or, you know, outreach for coffee or tea to talk through situations that people were experiencing. And after one particular conversation, I left and and turned to my husband and said, you know, like, there's got to be a better way. That certainly didn't mean starting an organization. That didn't necessarily mean starting a crisis text line. But what struck me in that conversation in particular was I'd been talking with a young woman who was first generation and her family to go to college and she'd joined the tech industry and was working her way through an extraordinarily difficult situation. And she'd leveraged the heck out of her LinkedIn network to finally get to me. By the time we talked, it was sort of, you know, weeks after the situation had unfolded, she had really struggled to find something that would help her navigate what she'd experienced. And she was, you know, worried she was dealing with all kinds of student loans. She was concerned about was this something she was going to experience throughout her career? Does she need to change industries? All kinds of questions that were coming up in light of what had occurred. And I left just thinking, what are the ways that we could do this better? How could we provide immediate or more immediate support really at the point when people need it most? And in a way that's 
accessible because she didn't have anything in her existing company. There wasn't anything available to her in her tiny startup. There was not even, you know, there wasn't even HR and definitely no employee benefits package or, you know, assistance program in any way. And so when we think about how many workers are in that situation, it's millions, it's 40, you know, 40 million working Americans work in workplaces with fewer than a hundred people. And that's not even including undocumented workers, gig workers, folks who are working outside of the traditional structure. And we have had this assumption that our safety net, that our social safety net comes through work. But that's like asking somebody, you know, who's experiencing harassment to go to their harasser for the source of the solving. And fundamentally, that is broken. And I think we're seeing that even more as the coronavirus has unfolded. People expecting the solution to the challenges that are happening to come from the business. Yes, businesses and companies and, and employers should have a role for sure. But should all the solutions come through that? No. Thank you so much for sharing the journey that led you to start Empower Work. As you may know, Tammy Cho also started Better Brave because she read Susan's founder online and she related to the experiences that Susan had to go through. It's really interesting to me to see these connections among founders who started these organizations because they felt like they were not alone in the movement to combat sexual harassment in the workplace. So empowering to see how people are sharing the, their stories and helping each other in you know it, this really tough topic. And my next question ties to your last point about the coronavirus. So in your opinion, how has COVID-19 affected the workplace environment? I think, I mean, what we're seeing with Empower Work when people reach out to us is that it's trending. I mean, the evolution of the virus as it's unfolding means that the conversations are evolving. A couple of weeks ago, we were seeing a lot of conversations concerned about safety. So for instance, I'm being asked to come into work I'm, you know, I'm taking care of my parents and my kids. My dad's immunocompromised. I don't feel right, you know, going in and, and what are my rights here? How can I have this conversation with my boss? They're not listening to me. So a lot of questions about navigating sort of health and safety before a lot of the lockdowns were happening. You know, now we're in a very different situation where most states and most local areas at this point, not all, but most are in a shelter in place and increasingly have more parameters that are keeping people. And now we're seeing more questions around unemployment. We're seeing questions about concern. I would say one of the trends that we're seeing and paying close attention to is we know in prior recessions and you know, post 9-11 and 2008, there is a lot of research that has shown the negative consequences coming out of a recession. Obviously for folks who have lost their jobs, the ability both to get back into the workforce as well as to build back up your, your confidence following that has huge emotional, economic, and health implications. The other side of that is for those who are employed, there's this real sense of, in a way, feeling stuck, that understanding that the current hiring landscape is radically different, that jobs are less available. There is an increase in people feeling like they have to stay in a job. And the reason I mention that, and I think it's important for folks who are, particularly who are experiencing real adversity in their workplace if for folks who are experiencing harassment or um, bullying or discrimination in some way, we have seen an increase in both negative behaviors in the workplace and an increase in the sense of, I have to stay in the job because I financially can't afford to not be in it. And I, I know that I can't find another job right now. And so that's a real concern for us is to make sure that they have the resources, they have the tools 
to not just feel like they have to put up with something, but that they have a game plan to help them feel safe and able to take action if needed. Yeah, it's crazy how right now we can experience something similar to what the bystanders and people who experience sexual harassment feel in the workspace. So going to this topic, can you firstly define what the bystander mean to you and as this definition can get blurry or between the lines in different contexts? Sure. So when I think about bystanders, I mean, I think there's so much research and interesting discussion, I think, culturally about what does bystander mean? What does upstander mean? What are folks who are, who jump in to, to be part of a solution? And, and what are the qualities and traits or instigators in a way for folks to take an action versus not? And so, you know, I think for, for a lot of folks, and I put myself in this category, bystander sometimes has a negative connotation because the implication is somebody's they're a witness to what's going on, but they are not part of intervening or part of addressing the, what's going on. I think that's a very normal, and there's a lot of research that shows this, it's a very normal reaction, particularly if you are in a situation where there are multiple people. So for instance, we see this with Empower Work, where a behavior unfolds, let's say, in a group environment. And the person who reaches out to us, whose experience is like, hey, there were 10 other people in this meeting who saw what happened, and, and, and you know, nobody said anything. And that's very in line with a lot of the research that shows you know, when more people are present, to a situation, there's less likelihood of folks jumping in. When you have like one person who's witness or also part of that, there's a higher likelihood that they'll intervene or say something. I think particularly in the workplace, there are more factors at play. People who speak up or who stand up for others may be risking their own financial livelihood. I think when we're talking about the current recession, you may have values that say, hey, this isn't right and I don't agree with this. And you're also thinking like, how am I going to pay rent? I can't afford to not be in a job right now. And so there can be a conflict between your values and, and what you believe and your ability to take care of your family or to pay for healthcare. And those are real tensions that are difficult. Um, and we see that balance, you know, in conversations where people really want to step up and take action in their workplace and are worried about retaliation, about the risks, you know, to say that, folks may not experience that would be false. It is documented that when people sometimes stand up for others, there can be negative ramifications for the person who stands up. That being said, you know, I think there's always an opportunity to live our values and there are ways to take action that feel right for each of us. Sometimes I think sitting down and having a conversation with someone you care about, a trusted relationship with to say, you know, how would I respond in a situation like this? Or what do I value? Or how do I want to stand up for somebody can be really important to think through how you might approach that if you were in, a, in that sort of situation. Thank you so much for this answer. And I was reading one of your articles and you talk about the pathway to opportunities and how bystanders can also deliver it. So can you talk about how do you think bystanders can help in these situations? Oh yeah, well actually, can I ask a question? How are you defining bystander? Because we might be talking about two different definitions here. So yeah, I can see it going both ways. So first would be, the one you told about how there can be just other people in the meeting or it can be young professionals and just any workers who are trying to proactively think about what they will do in such kind of situations. I think the typical definition of bystander, which is like in social science research and a lot of, is typically defined as the person who's witnessing something and who's not involved. So when we think about the parts that we could all play to shift culture or to shift policies or practices within a company, 
I wouldn't use the term bystander to refer to that. I would say the people who are part of that culture. But I think that's like, could just be like a word choice thing. Previously, we were using the bystander as more of, yes, person who is not doing uh, something right now. But what we want to do is to inform him better what are the ways and then this person will act. And I don't think we were using it in purely like negative connotation. I think maybe it was our misinterpretation. It's a great question to, to ask. Who can be involved in a solution? And the answer, I think for me, that's really positive there is like, we, we all have a part to play. I think to Alia's point, we were talking about these people who are bystanders who are not doing anything. You know, what other steps the individuals can take to help the people who are experiencing this out in these situations and just empowering them, you know, if you encounter this in the workplace uh, or you witness, you know, your coworker experiencing this. Yeah, that's a great question. And there's so much that each of us can do. And I think first and foremost, what I always offer to folks is we can all be human. You know, we're all human and we all have the ability to listen and to respond and to be empathetic. Those are muscles in some ways that sometimes have to get built, but they're all possible to build. I think in cases where people are witnessing someone going through something or someone has disclosed disclosed to them that they're going through something, there's a very natural human reaction to want to jump in and problem solve to say, you know, oh, I want to help you fix this or I want to. And what I always encourage people to do is take a step back and to be with the person first, to really create space, to listen. And that in and of itself is incredibly powerful to be able to be heard when you're going through something that's really challenging and to feel like you can share that with someone else is burden lifting those are practices that we can each build. You know, it's something that you can develop with a friend, you can develop. And there are some really easy ways that I I encourage people to listen to themselves if they are listening or if they're problem solving. And one is if you're in a conversation with a friend or a coworker or someone you care about and you hear yourself saying, have you, have you is advice wrapped in a question and it's problem solving and it's fundamentally disempowering. (laughs) You know, if someone is expressing something really deeply personal and your response is like, oh, well, have you tried like going and talking to your manager? You know, think about how you would feel if if that was the question that someone asked you. And so listening and, and paying attention to, am I asking questions that are trying to fix what's going on for the person? Or am I asking questions that show this person that I'm really deeply listening? So that might be, for instance, tell me more about what's going on or what's bothering you the most about what's going on. Being human, kind of step one, (laughs) like if something's going on. And then all of the other steps that can happen are, there are so many ways in which people can say, hey, I'm noticing things that are happening in my work environment that are out of line with my values. I'm noticing things that are happening in meetings that may seem really small, but can add up over time. There are lots of different other actions, again, that are rooted in humanness, but that are tied maybe to how do we bring different practices into workplace? How do we hold ourselves accountable to different standards? How do we interact with people differently? All the way up to maybe collectively organizing with other employees and saying, hey, we, you know, this is not a workplace environment that works for us. And we're going to work together, we want to stand up and do something differently. And so there are all different actions I think that people can take. And it depends on, you know, the situation that's happening. It depends on 
you know, are you in a one-on-one conversation where listening and humanness is what's called for, or are you in a situation where there are myriad challenges happening in your workplace that need to stop, you know, and, and that could be unlawful or certainly unethical. Those each call for some degree of different action. I find that it's very interesting. You talk about the question, have you, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Because I didn't think of it that way as it can be disempowering to the other side because they can't reach out. That's why they reaching out to you. And I want to go back to, The previous part, when you talk about when people decide whether to take actions, they will consider, you know, all these risks such as retaliation. I want to ask in your experiences or advice, what can these bystanders do if they want to take actions, but also trying to reduce or avoid the risk of being retaliated? Who in the company can they go to or should they go to a different organization to help their colleagues out? I mean, it's hard to say there's no blanket advice. And I would say what I encourage people to do, and, and, and certainly what we, we encourage with Empower Work is to listen deeply to what's going on in the situation. You know, you could talk to 200 different people who've experienced harassment, and they might have two different routes that are important for them because, you know, 200 different things that are at stake for them. And the same, I think, would be true for people who are wanting to stand up and, and, take an action. And they're all working in different workplaces. Someone might be working in a workplace where they have a trusted HR business partner who they feel is someone who would absolutely take action. That's amazing. You know, in that case, that person may decide, I want to go have a confidential conversation with this trusted HR partner who I have because I believe that the company will listen to my concern, will stand up for the employee. They have documented practices and so forth. Someone else may be in a radically different situation where they don't even have HR. So I think it's difficult to say, oh, there's one path to how someone could stand up for something. Um, I think it's really about understanding what's at stake for you, for the, the people involved, understanding what you value, understanding the circumstances that you're in and you know what's at risk. And all of those are going to inform decisions that you might make in terms of taking an action or in terms of being open or not to potential forms of retaliation or negative repercussions, generally speaking. I mean, there's retaliation in terms of the legal definition, and then there are all kinds of actions that can happen, you know, as, as a result that don't fall into a particular unlawful definition, but certainly are negative and pervasive. Yeah, I can see how there's no clear advice or even like quieting thing to suggest to everyone but can you share based on your experience and common stories what is the thing you would suggest to the young professionals and potential bystanders on how to approach such situation that goes back to the to the question of like being human you know if you've been a witness to someone who's experiencing harassment the simple act of checking in with them and saying i just saw this happen i want to make sure you're okay And I want to see if there's anything that you feel like you want to do about it, right? I mean, that's certainly the place where I would start if you're witnessing something directly. At the same time, there are also your own values. So that person may say to you, no, I really don't want you involved because maybe you don't have a relationship with that person. Maybe they don't trust you. There are all different reasons why someone might say, yes, I really want you to get involved and thank you so much. Or please don't. I'm embarrassed. I'm overwhelmed. This isn't what I need right now. And people may have very different reactions to someone coming up and and checking in with them. And that's okay. 
it, they're the person who experienced it and I'd want to support them and center them in whatever actions I might take. That being said, there are values that we each hold that we might decide, you know what, I can't believe that happened. This is fundamentally not a place that I want to work or this isn't a culture that I'm comfortable with and I might want to take other actions. And so I would say, informed yourself about what are the company's policies or practices. If you're seeing something that rises to a legal definition and you look up the legal definition of sexual harassment, there are a lot of different actions you can take around that. Unfortunately, what most people experience falls outside of a legal definition and yet is still really awful. I think that's where it's more difficult because there are so many different actions you could take around that, but there are less clear okay, you take this step, you take this step, you take this step, because by nature, gray area is difficult to navigate through. And that's where I think finding someone you trust, whether that's inside the company or outside of the company and having a conversation, getting more information about things, whether that's looking up resources like Better Brave or having a conversation you know, with a peer counselor through Empower Work, going to places where you can spend time reflecting on what did I just see? What do I value? How do I want to take action? How do I want to get more information? Those are really important steps. And to go on with this conversation, can you talk what are the negative aspects of workplace culture that lead to the sexual harassment to be underplayed? Yeah, so there's a lot of research that shows the intersection between unethical or negative behaviors and sexual harassment in cultures that are what we hear from Empower Work when I use someone's language who reaches out to us, we hear a lot of a toxic work situation or a negative work situation. And those are terms that we talked about a little bit earlier, don't necessarily have legal definitions. And yet there are situations where people feel undervalued, they feel mistreated, they feel sense of disrespect. And that can play out in things like they may be experiencing wage theft, or they may not be allowed to take time off from work, or there are all kinds of facets of a culture that can contribute to a sense of people being undervalued. And those workplaces are often where you see intersections with a range of other, whether it's sexual harassment or discrimination or bullying. I mean, so many of those come into play when you don't have a clear, established and supportive workplace culture. Going into this, what does a healthier workplace culture mean? And how can we each impact and accelerate the shift to the healthier workplace culture? Yeah, so, I mean, for me, a healthier workplace would be a workplace where people are valued, where people are clear on their contributions in the workplace, where there are policies and practices in place that support that. So, for instance, you know, a healthy workplace, would, especially in light of COVID right now, would be a workplace that supports people taking time off in a paid capacity if they're feeling sick, not just for themselves, but for caretaking as well to say, look, we value your humanness and we recognize that it's important to be human. <laughs> so that means like if you're sick, being able to have paid time off or, you know, um, having really supportive paid leave policies and things like that. So if you have to take paid leave because you're a recent parent, at the same time, there are plenty of workplaces that have those kind of supportive policies that aren't put into practice. And so I think when I look at true definition of healthy workplaces, it's that you have a culture where the policies and practices are aligned, where you have a structure in place and that structure is lived out in practices that happen from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom and all through. 
you know, that there's a sense of value in everyone who works in the environment. And that's really lived out and isn't just on paper, but then what people experience is something else. To bring you back to the role of companies, so through talking to different speakers on our podcast, as well as talking to Tammy and working with Better Brave, we learned that a lot of sexual harassment training as an onboarding process don't actually work or are they are not as effective as people would think because a lot of times companies just fulfill their legal requirements by checking this box of Oh, all of our employees have taken sexual harassment trainings and people don't know how to react even though they have been through these trainings. So we want to ask you how can we best motivate companies or organizations to care enough about shifting the process of onboarding people, training people about these different issues so that they actually equipped with appropriate ways to react. I want to say first, I am a believer in the fact that every human can build muscles, right? And sometimes that comes through training. There are lots of different ways we can all build muscles, flex muscles to build healthier workplaces. I think to your point about the trainings, yes, most sexual harassment trainings click a box to address the legal concerns. And there's a lot of research that shows that they don't necessarily have the intended impact. And there are a lot of trainings that exist, not just in sexual harassment, but for instance, in other areas as well that it can actually increase bias or increase negative behaviors. And so not every training is going to have the intended impact. Similar to humans, I can't shift someone's motivation. I'm not responsible for what someone else is motivated by. And that's difficult. I can control what I have control over. I can't necessarily impact someone else's intrinsic motivation. That being said, I can understand what motivates them and present options that may influence their decisions in line with what motivates them. And so I just, I know that that's a little bit of like a different take on the question, but I think if we were all walking around saying like, ah, how can we motivate companies? I would say it's how can we align incentives in a way that a company is incentivized to do something? Because we're not going to change. I mean, especially when you think about company as like a big entity. Well, a company is made up of people and there are decision makers within that company who are human. And so coming up with what are there ways in which we can make decisions to build healthier workplaces easier, more aligned, that makes it easier for the decision maker or the company to execute against those. I think whether or not, you know, a leader or leadership within a company cares enough about their culture is really hard to say, you know, because we're all human. And there are some people who are just inherently like not going to be motivated or incentivized to make those decisions, as unfortunate as that is. And there are plenty of others who are. And I think, at least for me, I like to spend time with the latter category (laughs) because it's sort of like there's so much more change that's possible with folks who are already predisposed and interested in that. And, And I should also say that I do think that's why you have certain legal parameters that are put into place to provide boxes for those who are not going to be motivated or incentivized in any other way. From an empowered work perspective, you know, what we see so often with folks who reach out to us is really an acknowledgement that a lot of the processes and things that are put into place that are supposedly supportive for people don't in fact really address what some of their concerns are. And so it, what does justice look like for someone who's experienced harassment or discrimination, I think isn't fully captured in a lot of the ways in which we provide opportunities for people to report or take action on those sorts of situations right now. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity to think about if we listen to those who've experienced harassment, discrimination, wage theft, 
this range of negative experiences in the workplace, if we listen to those perspectives and say, how could we build a better way of approaching this? I think that would certainly create a new roadmap for how we could address this from a policy perspective, from a structural perspective within companies, as well as how could we radically change trainings? (laughs) You actually kind of lead into what I was going to ask to follow up about the trainings. We have always said that trainings are not actually very effective. So what would you like to see change in the current training system? That, you know, I think going to the point just now about what we hear from people is, I would say, fundamentally kind of shifting it to be a more human-centered process where, you know, we hear from folks who do decide to report or who do decide to have a conversation with their manager or who do decide to take some action. And then it just goes into this black box. Okay, I reported it and checked off the legal boxes and now no one's gotten back to me. The policy has become disassociated from the human experience that's happening. People are worried because of legal liability, because of like, this is the way that we address the policy of just going and having a conversation with someone. And so the lack of that leaves this person feeling like, hey, nobody cares that I just did this or I don't feel supported. Obviously, as a crisis text line, we see the more negative conversations. So we're not seeing necessarily the more positive, like this worked wonderfully and I had a great experience, you know, so people are typically reaching out to us because something's not working. But I think that offers an opportunity to say, hey, in these situations where the reporting process, the the way things are being handled internally isn't working, what would make it better? And so that, I think what we see is centering it in like, how can we be human as part of this as well is important. And the trainings that I have seen that are very effective, not directly addressing sexual harassment, but I think bringing an ability to have conversations in workplaces that are hard are building more practices into a company where people feel like they have trust. And that includes trainings around how to have you know difficult conversations. It includes trainings around how to listen to others, how to acknowledge people and everything from like how you have a conversation with a colleague to how you have a conversation with a direct report or those are fundamental skills that also come into play and in particular, brought into even sharper focus when you have a situation where someone may be disclosing sexual harassment to you, or you may be needing to support someone through other situations. Thank you so much for giving some insights into the current workplace harassment trainings and ways we can better the current system. I find it really interesting that you point out there's so much that we can say, but at the end of the day, the motivations that drive companies to take actions and change our intrinsic motivation. My next question for you is, how can we understand the different backgrounds, experiences, and personalities that people bring into the workplace and work with them to eliminate the blurry lines or gray areas of harassment? There's so much documentation that shows that not only are folks who are less represented or less resourced in working environments more likely to experience harassment, discrimination, you know, the list can go on. And the implications for that are much more negative in terms of the emotional impacts, in terms of the economic impacts. And there's some fantastic research around this that Heather McLaughlin and others have done to look at what are the long tail impacts of this, particularly for marginalized or underrepresented groups. You know, in terms of how do we address those in particular, I think that goes back to having the right structures in place within companies, having the right support structures available to people. And, you know, as our conversation started off with how many people don't have access to resources or support, the communities that you just mentioned typically have less. So if you're an undocumented worker, if you're a gig worker, if you are, you know, first generation in your family to go to college or join an industry, you might have different resources available to you personally, professionally, 
than someone else. When people reach out to empower work, we hear the only a lot. You know, I'm the only woman on my team. I'm the only parent in my organization. And that isolation can have a direct impact in terms of both how you feel like you're able to navigate the situation you're experiencing and the availability of support within the entity that you're experiencing it. And so those factors definitely have an impact. In terms of your question of like, how do we address that? I mean, I think having more organizations like Better Brave, more resources and more abilities for recourse that are outside of a company can increase the likelihood that someone can have support. Because if you're the only, you know, if you're the only woman of color on your team and you're trying to escalate a situation internally and you're already feeling not supported, that's a lived experience of difficulty that is likely not going to get any easier in that moment to try to navigate that within the company. Yeah, I think the main takeaway from this conversation for me is that we can do such a simple step as checking in with the person and being human, and it can do a lot and help. So to close up our conversation, can you share some stories from your work that stood out the most to you that you can share with us? Sure. So we actually had somebody last week who reached out to, to us and she'd used, uh, she'd used Empower Work over a year ago. Um, and she'd been experiencing a combination of harassment and discrimination in her workplace. And she'd reached out to us a year ago and she followed up to give us an update on where she is today. Uh, and she, she gave permission for me to share some of her story. And what stood out to me was that for her, she'd been in a situation for so long where she was the only person experiencing what she was experiencing. There was no support in her workplace. She felt really isolated. And she'd also always imagined herself. She said, you know, I always imagined that I'd be someone who stood up to a bad boss or who stood up for myself. And yet I found myself not taking action on this for a really long time. And she was hard on herself for not doing more. And she reached out to Empower Work because she was so overwhelmed. She just felt like she needed to do something and she just wasn't sure what it was. She said, you know, what stuck with me was in the conversation, uh, the person who was supporting her, the volunteer said, what would it take to make you feel whole? And she said, I kept coming back to that question over and over again as things unfolded because it took her six to eight months to tackle all the different elements of her situation. And so for her, that included, she decided in the course of the conversation with Empower Work, that her first step, I mean, her first step was really reaching out to Empower Work. Her next step was she wanted to disclose to two coworkers and have a conversation with two coworkers. And so from that, she started putting together the pieces to take larger action. And so she found an attorney and she worked with an attorney. She got, you know, she started working with a therapist because she, she felt like it was impacting her ability to show up, you know, as a friend, as a parent. Um, and she, she wanted to make sure she had that additional support. Um, and she said, you know, I kept coming back to that question of what would it take for me to feel whole in all of my interactions? And what was really particularly challenging for her was that, you know, as she talked with the attorney and as she lined up documentation, she had all kinds of documentation for the situation. There unfortunately wasn't a legal case. There wasn't a way that she could take legal action. And that for her was, came as a bit of a surprise. And yet at the same time, she had an attorney who was in her camp. So she felt like she had all the pieces to line up and had protection in that sense, which was really helpful. And at the end of the day, what she felt like for her 
would make her whole was she wanted to be the person who she had always imagined herself to be to stand up for what she valued, to stand up for how she was treated. And so the actions that she ended up taking over the course of the six to eight months that she was working on this, she felt in a way kind of brought back her sense of confidence and strength that had been taken away because of the actions of this person. And she said, you know, it was so hard. And she said, what struck me is she said, you know, I would never judge anyone for what they do or don't do because when you're in the situation, it's so overwhelming and it's so hard. And just thinking about it every day is so difficult. And she said, I now have, you know, so much appreciation for the importance of resources and support and, and things to navigate this because you do, you need so many, you need a constellation of support when you're going through this. Um, And I think that's where, when I think about a future for how do we best support people, we certainly want to fundamentally radically alter workplaces so that these experiences don't happen at all. And at the same time, we have to make sure that everybody who is experiencing something has accessible resources to navigate it because nobody should feel like they're alone or isolated when they're going through something like this. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. And if you can help us pass the appreciation and I'll thank you to the person who gave you permission to share their story, that would be great as well. I know it takes a lot to share your own stories and what you go through and being vulnerable about it. And as our last question of the podcast, as our traditional closure, if there's one thing you want the audience of this podcast to take away with, what would it be? Oh, I would say it's two things. <laughs> um, one that is, works as well. <laughs> yeah, one is it's okay to not know. Uh, and I think there's a sense of like, oh, we have to be able to figure everything out. We have to be able to like know these things or I should know how to do this. And and I think for me, it's like, it's it's okay to not know. And that's totally normal. Like none of us should be expected to know all the things, you know? Um, and the second piece I would say is like, uh, you're not alone it feels isolating and overwhelming going through a situation where you're being disrespected, unappreciated, demeaned, belittled. Um, And in some ways that's the intention of that behavior. And yet there are incredible resources that do exist. That can be everything from a trusted friend to a coworker and, you know, asking for help and, and taking that first step to reach out to someone can feel really hard, but feeling isolated and alone is even harder. I really encourage people to say like, it's an act of strength to reach out and say, can you help me? Well, it was really nice talking and e-meeting you. Thank you so much, Jamie, for taking your time today and share various advice and stories with us. I especially feel more clear now about the definition of bystanders and ways we can take actions. Well, thank you all so much. And I hope you're hanging in there, all things considered with the current situation, because there's definitely adds a level of like stress and strain. And you stay safe as well. Thanks. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. Hi, everyone. It's Fong here. Thank you for listening to our episode this week on discussions around bystanders and the effect of COVID-19. It's eye-opening to us that Jamie brought up different definitions of bystanders. When we planned the podcast back in February, we had no idea that COVID-19 will be included in our content. But here we are. So much has changed, and we hope that you gain some new insights into workplace harassment so far. Next week, we are interviewing Joseph Elitrissimo, a fitness coach from the Bay Area. 
on similar topics surrounding bystanders, as well as the concept of toxic masculinity and how we can encourage more men to get involved. Lastly, it would mean a lot to us if you can share the word about Better Brave Community Podcast to people in your community. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. It will mean a lot to us. Thank you and stay safe.